You are now listening to the voice of Tamar with Vanessa Santiago. A few years ago, I was minding my business in the front row of church. Apostle Kevin Duhart called me out. And I look back because I, I just, he couldn't have been talking to me, but he was. And he honestly ministered to my heart. And it's now that I'm kind of releasing the manifestation of that prophetic word. So I'm super grateful. Last season, I had a podcast where I just told all my business. I did a tell-all. And it was off of the back of a sermon that I heard him preaching at the conference where he was saying that shame had him kind of holding back from going to a reunion, a class reunion, because of all the things that he had done, but just reminding people that he had been redeemed. And so I reached out to see if he could be here today, and he is. And so he's going to share a little bit of his story. So thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me, Vanessa. I really do appreciate being a part of your platform. Thank you. I spent a lot of time just kind of processing what I've experienced. So when I heard you testifying, I I did the shovel thing where you just kind of shovel it to the person behind you because it can't be you. And then the Holy Spirit just started to minister to me. And I'm sure that he will do that to many people who hear this podcast. Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. I really really appreciate that. I think uh, Apostle Cross called me about that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. So I just I'll just start from the beginning. Well, let me just say I am a fourth generation preacher. Uh, I said that to say that that just recently happened. uh, And I'll explain that in my my story. And so as a kid, I grew up in a classic Pentecostal background. Uh, We were Kojic kids, Church of God in Christ. And uh, my grandfather was our pastor. And my uncle served, my family served. So our family would be the equivalent of, I jokingly say this, but it's the truth of the Winans family, you know, <laughs> but in Texas, right? Everybody sings, plays, preaches, you minister in some way, shape, form, or fashion. So growing up in a church background, I had the expectation of ministry on my life as a, as, you know, at least I felt that pressure as a kid. Uh, I can remember as early as five years old, feeling like God called me to preach. Uh, I would mimic my uncles, mimic my grandfather. I would push his chair to the podium and I would stand in the chair and quote uh, John 3, 16. That was my sermon, gospel of the world, you know. And so that was my, that was my journey early on as a kid. And so uh, as I began to move as a, you know, adolescent and teenager and things of that nature, life begins to happen like anybody else. Uh, growing up in a Pentecostal expression, I saw miracle signs and wonders but unfortunately, I saw humanity and I saw it early. And so I would see, you know, misappropriation of funds, not from my grandfather and from my uncle, but just other people doing things that were really, really, really crazy. Uh, and then I remember as early as six or seven, um, almost being sexually abused um, by an older member of the church who was in the restroom while I was there. And uh, thank God for the ushers who walked in and kind of stop that before anything happened. As I got older, like most guys, you know, you get introduced to girls and uh, and hormones are going crazy. And so at that time, I think when you have a lot of family in one spot, sometimes it can be a little bit turbulent. And so my grandfather transitioned, um, the family takes over the church and a lot of back and forth control issues. So my mother decided, hey, the best thing for us to do is to leave. So when we left, I use that opportunity to explore different ideologies and concepts and thoughts and stuff like that. A lot of judgments against church stuff. I saw people getting hurt. 
and I just didn't want to go nowhere. So early on, I began to uh, low key rebel. You know, I would only do so much. My parents are married, so I would only do so much before I could really, you know, but low key rebel. And I'm growing up in the 90s. This is the time of gang violence is really high in San Antonio. Um, people are either Crips or Bloods, or you down with one or the other. Um, kids are getting killed. It was a regular occurrence. So growing up in that, you know, my mother would pray and, and make sure that, you know, my sisters and I didn't do things other kids were expected to do, especially kids that were uh, were Black or Hispanic. And so that was a big issue where we're, where we're from. My mother taught us to be saved, but she taught us also to have a, a, an important understanding of self and knowledge of self. So she was big on Black history. She was big on knowing your culture, knowing where you come from, knowing your ancestry, et cetera. And so she taught us to have a sense of pride about being African-American. So you mix that in the hearts of a, of a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and then you look at what's coupled with culture and police brutality, especially where we were from, gang violence, drugs, crack, et cetera. You come out of that with this sense of where is the Black leadership in the church world to address these issues? And at 13 and 14, that was a passion of mine, but I didn't see it. I didn't see it in my family. I didn't see it in my area. I did see it, though, on the corners. Every Saturday, there'd be some brothers with, with bean pies and bow ties and uh, black suits on with kufas on their head. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, these guys are a little different. And so around 15, I started experimenting with the idea that uh, maybe the way to God is not through Christ, but through Muhammad. Mm. And uh, and over some time and some mentorship there, I converted completely out of Christianity, which I don't really consider myself a strong Christian at the time. I consider myself a churchgoer and uh, converted out of that church mindset into this Islamic faith. And for the next three years, almost, I found myself, alhamdulillah, Five times a day, at least that was the attempt. I would pray, and and I wasn't just a traditional Muslim, but NOI, which is the Nation of Islam, and uh, wanted to train to be FOI, which is Fruit of Islam, a soldier. And I would read from the Quran as much as I could. I would learn to try to pray in Aramaic. That was just my life, you know, and and trying to uh, be a part of that culture. And I did that for about two and a half, three years. Then I met a young lady, who I went to school with. I actually was my first girlfriend at 13. We graduated from high school. Uh, at this point, I'm somewhat lost. Um, I have exhausted myself in, this, in Islam, but I found out that every time I prayed, nothing happened. That was the key for me, mm -hmm. Vanessa. Every time I would pray in the disciplines of Islam, or the disciplines of, 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 um, of Salat, what would happen is I would find myself not being able to feel the supernatural presence of that deity. In church, I remember being unearthed because something would come into the room. And even though it didn't come upon me, I could feel, I was aware that there was this feeling that came upon my soul and my person that I could, that would cause me to reverberate in my heart or, you know, just lose, lose sense of breath. Yeah. And it would take my breath away. But in Islam, I would pray and nothing would happen. It was almost like a deafening experience. So I knew that this might not be it. Met this young lady. She said, you got to come to my church. Through her and her family, long story short, I gave my heart back to Jesus. And um, the Lord set me on a trajectory that was uh, different than most. I think what most people gain in a year, I gained 
every two or three months. I just he began to fast pace me. I want to say this as well. Um, I was 13, five years old when I knew I was called, but I was 13 when the Lord actually began to burden me at the beginning of my rebellious state, right before it, I transitioned into that place. Um, I had several dreams of myself ministering in a 20-year-old body with a 13-year-old face. Mm. And an angelic presence would take me in and out of a sanctuary and show me me ministering and people being blessed by it. I spent seven years on the run, mm. if you will, until I finally surrendered back to Christ. And part of the grace of my life now is to pull people who are in error into a clear perspective relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, one that apologetically keeps them safe because they can articulate why they believe what they believe, but one also by power of God, be able to um, not just apologetically explain why they believe what they believe, but to cement in their heart via the supernatural that God is real. Yeah. I often say you can have philosophical debates and theological debates, but you cannot argue an experience. You can't tell me that somebody didn't just get healed in front of my face, you know? Yeah. But yeah, early on, you know, like most teenagers, just doing the most, growing up in a gang culture, not being a part of a gang, but living in the neighborhood with gangs and your friends becoming gang members. And there was so much that we escaped, bullets being shot at us, being grazed, being, I mean, so much I could tell you. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. And when I was listening to your story, I remember I had had a conversation with this gentleman who told me that he grew up in church and he had an uncle who would share all about the Bible. So all the questions he had, he would answer. And then the uncle passed away and he had questions wow. and he would go to the pastor and the pastor did not answer him. He would just be like, you don't need to answer. Just get the revelation. Yeah. And, and yeah. In, in church, sometimes when I notice people saying that kind of stuff, it's because maybe they've probably not studied the word or I, I just feel like there's just a, a better way to navigate when you don't have the answer to a yeah. question that a student asks. Yeah. And so yeah. because of that, he was kind of pushed into the direction of serving other gods. And so he, you know, and he was also sexually assaulted coincidentally. I really hope he hears this Lord sent him. But my question to you is after experiencing what you did within the church, what were your feelings towards God? Like after that specific experience? Good question. I think one of the first things that I think that really ruined me, and to be, be honest with you, was a conversation that a family member was having with another family member. And the conversation was centered around the idea of this. How can Jesus be God and man at the same time? Again, I'm 15 years old, mm -hmm. and I'm anticipating that my oldest sister, who is dating a Muslim at the time, uh, is asking my dad, how do you, how, how do you know uh, the differences between a, you know, Jesus can be God and man at the same time? How does that happen? And my dad didn't have an answer. Mm. It's like he, he felt why he believed what he believed. He saw things as a kid, being a son of a preacher, et cetera, that, that um, helped him believe what he believed. He couldn't be shaken, but he mm. couldn't articulate why he believed what he believed. And so that wounded me because here she is with questions and answers, even though they're false answers. And what I found out over time is that, um, is that even a lie can sound like truth if it's well articulated. Wow. And so for me, I think what, what, what messed me up was not having an answer for that. It made me begin to downplay everything that I had saw growing up and at least allowed the enemy room and space to cause me to think that there's no real validity behind what it is that we were experiencing. So it wounded me because I didn't think that Christians had answers. So I judged the church. 
I felt that the church was full of a bunch of people who were strictly emotional, but they had no revelation. They had no intel. They had no scholarship. They were broke. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but in this other, and, and, and they didn't care about the community. They didn't care mm. about what was happening. They, they, they prayed about it, but they never did anything to uh, put feet or hands to what they was praying about. So I judged the church harshly. And oftentimes when people leave the church, it is the judgment that keeps them out. Yeah. It's not the wound or the offense. It's the judgment that is uh, born out of the offense or born out of the, um, the unmet expectation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was a victim of my own judgment and my own judgment about, you know, the people of God was that they didn't have answers. So if they don't have answers about why they believe what they believe and they're supposed to be the leaders, why the heck am I following this again? Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what advice would you give somebody who maybe grew up in the church, had similar experiences as you, and has never walked back into a church as a result of that? Forgiving is re really easy to say, but I would say before I came back into the church context, again, I was dating this young lady who I ended up marrying, but her father walked with me. I would come home from my HBCU, drive in from the weekend, and he would walk with me, Vanessa, through the scriptures. And then after he would do like a 20 minute Bible study or challenge me with the Quran, you know, he would, with his word, we'd break bread for like an hour. Yeah. And I think it was the, the scripture says with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Yeah. I think that sometimes God sends people to draw you, not necessarily back into the building, but first to him. And yeah. what I loved about her family, I think, is that they weren't trying to get me in church more. They were trying to get me to Christ. And I think that's where uh, they won because it wasn't about be here this Sunday because I need you to be here this Sunday. It was like, hey, to continue this conversation we've been having, I want to invite you to this, to this church, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say, be open to the, here's the thing, you know the truth. And when the truth finds a lie, it'll keep meddling with you. Mm -hmm. And even if you continue to believe the lie, it doesn't mean that you don't know that that was the truth that you just ignored. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I would say, be open to the fact that, um, that God cares enough about you to, you know, be, be reaching out to you. Number two, um, it's not every church yeah, and it's not every Christian. It's just those that, and I want to say this as well. When my sister asked my father that question, my older sister, and my dad didn't have an answer, apologetically speaking at the time, the victim was me. He knew why he believed what he believed. He just couldn't articulate it. Yeah. And she was an error, but the third party is the person the enemy's after. Yeah. It was me, the person who's in the room eating cereal, listening to the conversation and fell victim to you not having an answer. Right. I hope after, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then after being marked too, right. Cause it's like, you already know that God is trying to send you in this direction and you know, you're kind of warring with this. Right. So that, that definitely makes sense. I remember when we were at the Baltimore conference, you made mm -hmm. mention of a young lady exposing herself to you in a way that was inappropriate. And um, you kind of just kind of went, you know, not crazy, but you know, teenage and just kind of yes. how that kind of took you um, in that direction. Like, how do you unpack that when you're trying to heal with God? Because from my, my experience, I thought it was, I'm going to go to the altar, I'm going to raise my hands, I'm going to pray, and then everything's going to be okay. But there was like yeah, internal sure. healing that needed to happen. So my, my question for you, especially as a male from that perspective, when yeah, um, you yeah. guys are shamed a little bit more than women, like how did that process for you go? 
That's a good question. Cause I think, especially when you think about same gender molestation, uh, it, you can be shamed for it. Like you, or you feel ashamed about talking about, hey, some guy sexually abused me when I was a child, right? But when it's same gender molestation and the woman's older, it's almost like a badge of honor in certain communities. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, you was, you was 10 and you was with this 15, 16, 18 year old. Yeah. It's like a badge of honor. So you feel like, am I really a victim? But the truth of the matter is you are. The scripture says not to awaken love before time. And oftentimes when someone touches you inappropriately, follows you, molests you, whatever, has sex with you, or even kisses you prematurely, it awakens something before it needs to be awakened, right? And so in my case, a family member, you know, children, kids hanging out and, you know, somebody takes a nap, the adult or the babysitter, I don't even remember who it was, they slip into the room, you, you're laughing, you're joking, and then, hey, touch this, touch this. And before you know it, you have this, uh, I want to use the right words. Well, your, your, your audience is adults, right? Yeah. You have this explosion <laughs> yeah. out of nowhere and this feeling that you want to chase again. Yeah. And I remember for me, not knowing because I was opened up to something prematurely, I was trying to duplicate that same feeling with other people. How did I heal from? And I think initially I had to say something. Yeah. I think when I came to Christ and then came to an understanding of deliverance and, and et cetera, I began to walk through my own journey and realize part of what I'm doing is stemmed from what I was exposed to early. There was a pervertedness with how I saw girls because a woman introduced me to women this way first, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, as an object. So I would objectify women because I was introduced to sex from an objective perspective from, you know, touch me, fondle me, do this to me, not from love or covenant or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so the first thing I had to do is admit to myself that that was wrong. That's not a badge of honor that an older person did that to me. Yeah. That's wrong. Number yeah. two, I had to grieve for that little boy. Mm. Like, man, you were 10 years old and someone took that from you. I had to sit in there for a while and I had to let that thing grieve. The next thing is to be angry. Yeah. But if you're filled with the spirit of God, what happens is that anger turns to compassion because I realized she did because somebody did that to her. Yeah. So then instead of the anger, I felt like, dang, you was really messed up when you got to me because someone messed you up. And I began to explore her story because, you know, as family, I kind of found out more as you get older, you know, you find out things as you get mm -hmm. older, like, oh my goodness, your mother was having different men out the house and they were doing this to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you just did what somebody, you did to me what somebody was doing to you, except for in our case, you have the upper hand. Yeah instead of someone else taking that from you. And so I think once I forgave that, that's when the healing began. I knew I was resolved when I'm no longer holding you hostage to doing to me what someone did to you. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, that's when I really began to, to, to grow and develop from that place. Now, I did share with my folks, you know, and, uh, and let them know what was going on. Many years later, I was an adult when I finally said, hey, you know, this happened to me. Yeah. And they're like, really? You know what I mean? But I was so healed past it and from it that it wasn't an indictment. I could see the person love on the person because I realized you may be ashamed to say something to me, but it's okay. Somebody abused you and that's why you came after me. Yeah. I thank God that he, he allowed me to even get to this space to 
to be okay and resolve with the fact that God's going to use this. It's not wasted. He's yeah. going to use this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people, when it's happened within the family context, I mean, that's my personal experience. I've identified that it's happened like three generations back, except for nobody's yeah. ever had the, the, not the, I, I'll say the courage to kind of have an open conversation about it amongst right. family. Yeah. People tend to get really angry when you're now exposing a family secret. So I don't know if that was your experience, but like, how does somebody who's trying to heal navigate through that? Because it's it's, it's like being re-victimized all over again when a family member maybe suggests that either it didn't happen or you um, did something to invite that experience. Welcome it. Yeah. Yeah. I think in my case, there was some denial at first. Like that didn't happen to you. And yeah. then later on, it became, what happened to everybody? You know, yeah. and I think it's, what happens is persons don't want to feel responsible for what happened. Meaning like, uh, man, you know, that's, it happened on my watch mm -hmm. or it happened when, you know, you was with me or something like that, because, and, and I think it's an embarrassment thing. It's a shame thing. It's a, it's a difficult space to navigate. And if you're not equipped to do it, emotionally within your own self, you're definitely going to push that away. Yeah. Uh, because that's, it may open up me discussing this with you may open up a wound in you that nobody's familiar with, you know? Yeah. And so, again, one of the greatest things you can learn to do for yourself is to forgive without an apology. And I think that in this age of ministry and, and just, just culture, people want an apology. They, they're demanding that you tell them, you got to learn. Some of the people that offended you are in the grave. What mm -hmm. would you do then? You have to learn how to heal without an apology. Here's the thing. I don't need you to apologize to me for me to know it's better to forgive you for me. Yeah. I don't need you to apologize to, to, to heal. Man, I don't. That's good. I don't need that. That's not required. Yeah. If you never say I'm sorry, I have a choice. Do I stay stuck in this offense or do I move past it? And yeah. I think you got to love yourself enough to say I'm not going to be stuck in that space. I'm going to forgive and it's going to heap hot coals on your head, but I'm going to forgive and I'm going to move to the future. So I had a little bit of resistance, but it wasn't that bad because I had already decided I'm forgiven regardless. I'm just telling you because out of the formality, but yeah, it's okay. I'm I'm pretty open in the podcast. Like you're just gonna get transparent. I'm gonna put if anybody it. ever tries to say anything about me, like she already put it on the podcast. But one of the right, things that right. I identified specifically with men is that there there's this like the lust is awakened right and so they find themselves yeah. especially when it was same sex violation sleeping yeah. with as many people as they can sometimes having children with them to kind of fill that void and so yeah. can you kind of explain how lust and that that violation really goes hand in hand and you kind of did but even how somebody can identify when they're being run by lust like sometimes it's just something so in them and it's such a behavior yeah. pattern that they don't even identify that it's abnormal Years ago, I was ministering to a young man who had been sexually abused uh, by a former youth pastor. And so as he grew older, uh, one of the ways I think he was finding to straighten himself out or cleanse himself, because he had never had a tendency to sleep with men. He just yeah. trusted his youth pastor and was manipulated by his youth pastor, right? Yeah. But he never had a desire to be with men, never. Yeah. And so his heart has always been for girls, for ladies, for women. So the next 10 years of his life was strictly sleeping with as many women as he could. So I think for him, it was securing his manhood. Yeah. Because as he got older, he realized what happened to me was not only wrong, 
but this is wrong, 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 wrong. And it's not even what I want. So he would sleep with different women to, to somewhat uh, solidify, secure the fact that he's a man, mm-hmm. right? I think with any sexual abuse, for some, it opens up in, in lust. For many, it does. For many, it does. And then for others, it becomes you know suicide, low self-worth, et cetera. But for those that it awakens lust in them, I think uh, it's because it's like Adam and Eve are here, here they are in the garden and uh, they're minding their business, they're dressing and keeping, they're working, they're doing everything God's called them to do. Then all of a sudden, they're enticed by this subtle creature, uh, the serpent, that gives them or suggests to them that they should have this fruit. They eat from the fruit and their eyes are open. That's exactly what happens in molestation in moments of rape or whatever, is that your eyes have now been opened and your innocence has been taken. Mm-hmm. And so now there's this uh, secret life that's come into play. Because most people that are the victims of those who are being, or that are, you know, most people who are the victims of those who are molesting them, there's a secret world within mm-hmm. them. There's this secret now between you and I that we only do when you come over or I come over. And I'm going to keep this from mom and dad and siblings and cousins. Or, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's the secret world. Mm-hmm. And it develops a life of secrecy. But in that secrecy also develops a life of perver- perversion. Yeah. And it's a safe place. Because if for one moment you enjoy what happened to you, you want to do that over and over and over again. In my case, I enjoyed it. Even though it was the first time it's ever happened, yeah. I had this um again <laughs> this um explosion within me yeah and i wanted to duplicate that yeah and that's where the perversion began um so i i think that's what it is i think that there's certain things that you're supposed to enjoy on within the context and, and the confounds of marriage that when you do come together and you guys have that moment together where you really connect the way the person who was prematurely fondling you was trying to connect with you it's a covenant thing. It's a, it's a thing between the two of you all. It's, it's in God's will. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so that same feeling that you had when you lost your virginity, whether you did with somebody you love, but it was premature. And when the relationship ended, your heart was broken too. That's the passion you're supposed to have when you're married to that person. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's really, it's really supposed to be for that person. And so pure um, except for this time it's, it's pure, pure. Mm-hmm. it's pure and it's, it's god's will yeah. but we we you know but sometimes that's taken from us yeah or it's introduced to us prematurely and uh, i think with men especially in our culture we're taught to be especially and i want to go here in the urban dynamic yeah you're taught to you know whether it's from the music or just culture of movies etc you're taught to feel like i'm supposed to get out here a little bit before I settle down you know what I mean it's expected of you yeah (laughs) and so you add molestation or a breach in your sexuality prematurely with cultural expectations Mm -hmm. dangerous it is dangerous Dangerous. and hormones it's a mess (laughs) kind of thinking about the fact that you are now a pastor after after yeah, running yeah. third generation Lord was like come on back and I'm about to put you in the place that you were running from because that's, yeah, all, that's yeah. how he does us <laughs> I run into often people who will come under a stat and just kind of explain like I was violated in the church I told so and so and they over spiritualized it like that's what I yeah. experienced in my own personal experience <clears throat> I 
as wow. a pastor, what would be your response to a situation like that? Because I see, and I'm going to try not give too much of my opinion because I don't want to lead your answer, but I see often that it is very over-spiritualized. And while it is spiritual, there's this impulse that predators have and repeat offenders have that um, when they're yeah. not caught, they just strategically do it in a more hidden fashion. And so what would be your response as a pastor? That's first of all, it's a good question. So I can't say much because mm -hmm. I had a recent situation and uh, I can't say much about it because of all of this is underage, right? Yeah. And so, but I can give you some of the things that we put in place because I think every pastor feels like, hey, it's not going to happen until it happens mm -hmm. right until it happens and so one of the things that was big for me in this situation was justice mm -hmm. what does justice look like to the person who's offended what does justice look like to the person to the family of that person who's offended and what does justice look like to the person who blew the whistle mm. on the act because in my situation it was a slightly older teen who had was caught doing something inappropriate to a child mm. and another team saw it. Yeah. So yeah. my thought is, what does justice look like to the team that caught it through the whistle and told immediately? What does justice look like to the child who has been offended mm -hmm. and the family of the child who's been offended? Yeah. That's the next question. And then what does justice look like in front of those who the team reported it to? Mm -hmm. so my thought process is i we can we're not going to spiritualize this yes mm -hmm. there's a spiritual component number one this child has some, some there's definitely some demonic going on within them they're older they took advantage of a kid etc 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 yes we'll deal with that and we'll cross that bridge but legally what is our responsibility because as mm -hmm. a 501c3 you're still an agency of the state you have to report that so what does the criminal reporting system look like what does what's going on in the family's context at home where this child would think that's okay to do that? Uh, is his parents are his parents covering up for something? Are they deflecting when I'm having a difficult, straightforward conversation about this issue with them? You know what I mean? And so we put things in place to to make sure that if it ever, God forbid, but if it ever happened again, this is our one, two, three. So we definitely notify the authorities. We sat down with both parties individually, both parents of both parties individually, and had a conversation. We asked the party of the offended, do you want to press charges? Gave them the, the honest to say yes or no, you know what I mean? And we spoke to the other party, say, hey, I know that your, your son was a part of this. He no longer can be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, he no longer can be around this when he comes. You need to be with him because of this. Yeah. <laughs> and it may be uncomfortable uh, and they may be embarrassed, but at this point, it's not about your feeling. It's about number one, protecting others. And number two, making sure that you understand that there's consequences for what this child did and that you need to be in partnership with us to salvage what's going on within him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, I, I really believe in justice. Whatever justice looks like is what we're going to do. Yeah. Because what we don't want is a kid to be offended in church, by church, be, you know, with somebody from church and equate pain to not to God, not giving him justice. Yeah. 
So my next question for you would be in the surrounding areas of where I live in Rochester, New York, there was a principal who was arrested for violating, I think he's over 34 children at this point. And so there's always this idea that it'll be children, you know, older children and younger children, but sometimes people in authority um, will violate children. That was also my personal experience. I was violated by the children's pastor. So of all places, I mean, there's, there's no place, but it, you know, there's just people in authority who take those kind of advantages. And what I've seen a lot, um, as I've been privileged to a lot of people's story from just simply doing this podcast is that within the church context, there's never a strategy put in place. It's always over spiritualized and, you know, in religious churches, you pat them in the hand, you can't play your instrument for three months. And then that's the restoration process. And yeah, so it's very sobering. And, and it makes me happy to know that that is the perspective of someone who is a pastor. So as a father of sons, what does yes. your conversation with them look like? Because people only, well, sometimes people don't have the safe touch conversation um, with their children at all. But if they do, they do it with their daughters. How do you talk to your sons about this? That's a good question. I think my sons are 15 now and 13. So at this point, they know what inappropriate touching looks like. But when they were younger, we really wanted them to understand it. We didn't do it in a threatening way. Their mother and myself, we both sat down and said, hey, listen, if someone touches you, uh, and, and we had a great pediatrician as well. We had a great pediatrician as well that even in the room when he did his examinations, he would say to them as early as two, hey, only mommy and daddy can do this. And I, even though I'm doing this, I'm doing it in front of mom and dad. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So they knew very early, hey, nobody can see us below the waist unless it's mom and dad. And then I would re, revisit that. Another thing I did, Vanessa, that uh, my wife and I both did that I, I'm going to say this, is that we wouldn't let them go anywhere to spend the night until we felt, uh, number one, really comfortable with the family. Yeah. And number two, that they were old enough to tell us detail by detail how they were feeling, what they were feeling, what questions were being asked, et cetera, yeah. if they needed to. Yeah. And so we, we keep an open line of communication that if something ever happened to our children, they know they can come directly to us and feel safe and know that regardless of even if they participated, that daddy and mom's not going to throw them away. Yeah. We're going to hear you. We're going to cover you to the best of our ability. You know what I mean? And uh, that mom and dad's a safe place. But we made sure they knew early on. No one touches you here, sees this, asks to seize this uh changes anything we play no games we don't do no house we don't play house in this house (laughs) exactly and uh and and if someone asks you to do so i don't care who it is you tell dad you understand and i think our our family community also surrounded uh, my father-in-law was big on that he would say things listen if i ever look at you any kind of way you get up out of here he would he would say things. It was like a thing that, you know, we, we shamed that kind of behavior. That's what we yeah. did. We yeah. shamed that. Yeah. yeah. We shamed it. So if somebody did it, you knew that you were dealing with somebody who was off. Yeah. So yeah. We, we shamed it. We shamed yeah. it. We sure did. We embarrassed it before it could even happen. 
Man, that's good. That's good. Because um, I often share too that like a lot of times families kind of um, dance around the conversation because they don't want to prematurely introduce their children to something that, Understood. you know, they don't know yet. But what happens is that the pedophile doesn't mind um, introducing them to something like that. And it's always this guide, like, let's play a game. Right. You know, that's how a lot of my violations happen as well. And so I think it's just important to have very direct conversations with your kids so that they're Agreed. not skating around um, those things. Agreed. How did you kind of have that conversation with your wife? Like, do you have those conversations? Well, and you guys were, um, you, you were like high school sweethearts-ish. But how did you have that conversation yeah. with her so that she was well informed of it? Do you do that when you're on the first date, third date? after? In reference to what happened to me? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I think again, and this is probably the, again, the, a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't the opposite sex. Yeah. It was easy to talk about it. Okay. Now, introducing her to the person was a challenge. Oh. Because it's a it's a relative. It's somebody yeah. who, and I'm not mad. Yeah. I'm not mad because I realized through the, the eyesight of deliverance, through the lens of deliverance, I see the person as had needing help at the yeah. time. Yeah. I'm past it. I'm it's it's working for me. It's not working against me anymore. This is working yeah. for me, right? I'm yeah. healed, I'm delivered, I'm set free. Am I doing that to anybody else? I don't have any low self-esteem issues or anything of that nature. I'm good. Yeah. And so, you know, I think when I shared with her my story, she eventually gave me hers. Okay. So it wasn't something we talked about like first day, second day, third day. <laughs> uh, but I do believe before we uh, did marry, we had had the conversation. Okay. Um, and just the moment, again, I think as you go through moments of healing, inner healing and I come from the delivery I think you do as well oh, yes. I come from a deliverance context so we mm -hmm. do a lot of inner healing deliverance sessions with people I think part of me going through that was making sure she understood that especially if she's going to be a part of my life's journey it's yeah. important that she knows that happened to me yeah even though it's not impacting me it happened to me mm -hmm. and because I was so forward and so forthright about stuff like that uh, she told me her own stories so for us, it wasn't a thing. It's like, hey, if I'm gonna be walking with you and I know we're gonna be walking together, I'm not talking about, you know, um, we're just exploring, seeing what it's like for the next few, you know, weeks, months, whatever. I'm talking about three years in. Yeah. It's, it's you know, we're, we're talking about marriage, then I divorce. Hey, this happened to me. Uh, it doesn't impact me in any way, shape, form or fashion, but, and it wasn't something I felt like, hey, you know what? I want to move to uh, Seattle one day. Also, by the way, I was molested. No, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that. It was yeah. more or less just as the conversation goes and we begin to reveal different parts of our journeys, I expressed it to her. Yeah. And, that's uh, really but in turn, she said, well, you know what? That happened to me. Man. Man, I appreciate this. If it, this, it's Very good. Welcome. It's good. This is really you. good. And I know that it's going to transform a lot of people's um, just hearts and minds and um, open them up to just getting to know God and not yeah. just the building where he finds himself, but that he lives inside of us and he's everywhere. Yeah, and so exactly. Exactly. if you could pray, that would be awesome. <laughs> That'd be good. Let's do it. Uh, for all you listen, first of all, thank you, Vanessa, for inviting me and asking you to be a part. I'm really, really honored by that. Thank you so much. I didn't know what to expect, so this was great. And, uh, anytime you need me, let me know. Um, and uh, But Father, thank you for this platform that you are using through this woman of God and what she's what she's been obedient to do for you and for those that you're trying to reach. And I thank you for those who uh, may even be far away from you 
those who are far away from the church context, but their shame and their journeys and the embarrassment of what they've experienced, they don't feel worthy enough to be used by you, let alone in the company of the saints. Lord, I thank you, Father, that you are near to the brokenhearted. Your scripture declares you are near to those whose hearts are broken. And I thank you that even now you are near to men and women who are watching and listening to this particular podcast. And I ask you, Father, that you would rebuke the spirit of shame, the spirit of guilt, and uh, and low self-worth and low self-value that your presence would overwhelm them, the peace of God would give them the confidence to know that there's nothing that they've experienced in this life that you can't handle, yes, that you can't touch, you can't redeem, and you can't use. I thank you that they understand that, Father, you didn't allow it. Somebody else did it. But, Father, you can redeem it, and you can use it. Hallelujah. And you can restore, and you can bring hope, and you can bring a future, and you can bring peace and calm, and you can bring direction and clarity to their journeys and their stories. I thank you that you're bringing light to dark places for every man and woman that's listening. I thank you that you're robbing the enemy of dangling the carrot of defeat and uh, and shame and guilt in the hearts and the minds of those who are listening. And I ask you for complete freedom to come to their hearts and to their minds in Jesus name that many will reach out even to Vanessa and to their pastors and be and be transparent about their journeys that you can use it to the glory of God just like you did for many of us in Jesus name amen 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 so where can people find you because they're going to try to find you okay well you know I'm the pastor of all nations worship assembly of San Antonio and so you can go to allnationssa.com and you can find us there. You can type in Kevin Duhart. I'm on Instagram, Kevin Duhart, Facebook, Kevin Duhart. And so uh, Twitter, Kevin Duhart. <laughs> and uh, so you can find me. You type in my name. There's one other Kevin Duhart, I think, in the world. He's a football player. And <laughs> I'm not him. And so it's Duhart, not Durant. But you can find me typing my name, <laughs> Kevin Duhart. And, uh, and you can follow us on YouTube and everywhere else. Yeah. All right. So thank you, everybody.